from Digitiki.com. We bring you musical gems from near and far, blended into a pattern of glorious harmony. Program based on the universal language of music, it is our pleasure to present to you Corla Bandit. Welcome back for another visit here at the Quiet Village. I'm your host, Digitiki, coming to you as always from Digitiki.com, broadcasting from the heart of the Quiet Village. Now, throughout this entire show's length, all of the episodes, I've tried to bring you exotic music and artists you may and may not know of. There is one artist, however, that is well-known in Exotica circles, but I have not yet represented to my own satisfaction. He is considered, and rightly so, to be the godfather of Exotica. His music is unique, both beautiful, haunting, lyrical, and mesmerizing, all at the same time in most cases. I'm talking about Korla Pandit. Some of you are undoubtedly saying, oh yes, Corla Pandit. And others are probably saying, who's Corla Pandit? Well, Corla Pandit was an organist and pianist who rose to fame in the late 40s as the turban-wearing exotica figure on the newest technological wonder known as television. He was a man of firsts. He was the first to have an all-music television show. He was the first to be featured in the forerunner to music videos, you know, decades before MTV. He was uh, he was creating exotic music almost a decade before Les Baxter and certainly before Martin Denny, who were widely credited as giving birth to the genre. And, as you will learn later in the show, he was first with a few other very surprising things. Join me on the show uh, joining me on the show later on. I'm very pleased to have John Turner, the creator of a new documentary about Corla Pandit entitled Corla. The film is a true labor of love and it is it is, it is already garnering audience acclaim. So I'm going to devote this entire episode to Corla Pandit. So let's get started with a tune that was uh, kind of like his theme. Here is Magnetic Theme on The Quiet Village.
Pride, a very strange, exotica set right there from Corla Pandit. First track in that set was called Magnetic Theme. Uh, I believe that was kind of a theme of theme song of his, if I'm not mistaken. The second track was a classic, The Breeze and I. And the third track was a very exotic track called Ode to a Desert Love. And the last track in there was Strange Enchantment, apt name for a Corla Pandit track. And I must confess, I don't know too much about Corla Pandit, or I didn't until I started researching him and his music for this episode. Um, he was a complete enigma to his fans. Imagine a television show where this very handsome, exotic looking man wearing a bejeweled turban playing exotic, strange music on the organ by himself, uh, all while looking hypnotically into the camera and never taking his eyes off of you. Just him, just music, never looking away from the camera. It was very hypnotizing. He used the organ as a complete orchestra, as you could hear there um, in those last tracks. Uh, he had, he could create very theremin-like, very ethereal, like the theremin instrument uh, sounds on the organ, along with bells. And what most people don't seem to realize, a lot of the big cathedral organs could do trumpet sounds, reed sounds, woodwinds, even percussion and Corla used a lot of that. I mean, a lot of it was just him and him alone. He became a phenomenon. He was hugely popular. His television show was a big hit, especially with Housewives America, who were transfixed by this handsome, exotic musician from India who gazed at them from their television sets. Uh, he was a complete enigma, never speaking, but he also had a deep deep secret, one that he kept from everyone, even his family. And we're going to have more on that deep secret from John Turner, who's going to be joining me here in just a little bit. But I'm going to play for you a track from Corla because he performed pretty much right up until his death, which I believe was in 1998 or 99, if I'm not mistaken. I could be mistaken, but I believe so. Uh, he was constantly doing uh, appearances, and he even appeared as a cameo in the film Ed Wood. So here is a rare live recording of Corla Pandit doing the classic tune, Miserloo. Thank you. 
Does anyone want to give me a belly dash to this? Come on up. Okay, I am here with one of the creators of the new movie, Corla. John Turner is joining me here in the Quiet Village. Welcome, John. Well, welcome to you, uh, uh, Mark, and thank you for having me on. Tell me a little bit about yourself and uh, and how you how you came to get Corla as a uh, subject for a film. Sure. Um, I'm a retired... Um, uh, film, video editor, uh, also a arts and entertainment uh, producer for ABC KGO TV in San Francisco for 33 years. Ah. Anyway, um, in 1990, I was uh, producing a series on eccentric personalities of the Bay Area, and I remember seeing a picture of a fellow named Orla Pandit, who had worked at the same station I was working at in 1953, had a live 
music show for, for one year and was apparently quite popular. And so I checked around to see anybody could get in contact with him and was fortunate enough to find out that he lived only about uh, an hour north of San Francisco in Calistoga. Uh-huh. So I called him up and asked him if we could uh, stop by for an interview, and he said, of course. And anyway, long story short, we spent an afternoon with him, I mean, a really wonderful afternoon with him, in which he uh, talked about uh, his time at KGO, and he talked about uh, his philosophy uh, about the universal language of music and a, a little bit about coming from India. And he was a very soft-spoken, uh, Natalie-dressed, uh, short, kind of a slight fellow who wore a <laughs> turban. Uh-huh. And the thing that was fascinating in the way that uh, the, way that, uh, the uh, interview with Corla Pandit was promoted was that the fact that when he was in San Francisco, and as I found out later, also in his earlier show in KTLA, on KTLA in Los Angeles that ran from 1949 to 1951, he never spoke a word. He always uh, played either his Hammond B3 organ or his piano sometimes simultaneously, looked directly into the camera, and... um, Never spoke a word. Not a word. That was part of his uh, his uh, uh, his history and some of his appeal, especially with uh, young housewives. That was his it was biggest demographic in Los Angeles was these young housewives. They swooned over over <laughs> Corla. They loved him because he was he was an attractive fellow and magnetic. Plus, he didn't he didn't speak. They felt, hmm, I wonder where in India he's from. I wonder <laughs> what he's doing here in the States. They never knew. So they were able to create a, a fantasy, their own personal fantasy around Corla. Anyway, uh, <laughs> we end the segment in San Francisco. Corla called me back up, you know, the next day and uh, said he enjoyed, uh, you know, you know, uh, uh, sending the message to his, his fans again. And uh, anyway, he called me up about every uh, three months, once every three months, up until 1998 when he died. Really? And I would chat for about 10 or 15 minutes. It was basically the same conversation. He was asking me basically if he could uh, get me any gigs in the Bay Area Uh or, um, you know, what he was up to. You know, Mm -hmm. for one time he, uh, you know, was in a movie with, uh, uh, one of uh, Tim Burton's film on uh, Ed Wood, and he was all excited about that. But anyway, so I had this very casual friendships with, with uh, Corla, and it was until uh, three years after he died in 2000, in 1998, and, and in 2001, uh, somebody sent me a copy of LA Magazine, which had an article by a uh, journalist, uh, R.J. Smith, about the many faces of Corla Pandan. <laughs> anyway, in this article, it revealed, much to my surprise and just about anybody else who's familiar with Corla, that Corla, instead of being this uh, 
child prodigy musician from New Delhi, India. He was actually uh, an African-American from Columbia, Missouri, the son of a Baptist minister. So when that backstory was revealed, you know, I just said, "Wow, that's that's a movie right there. That's 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 an oh, amazing." Yeah. And at that time, I also I was working with um, another producer at Channel Seven, Eric Christensen, and uh, we both thought, "Well, you know, we you know, if we ever get a chance, we should maybe uh, see if we could get something done uh, on Coral Band." And it wasn't until until we both retired in 2010 that we decided to, um, you know, combine our uh, energy and our, our knowledge about, you know, how to put something together and our funds, and we uh, co-produced this documentary on Corla Pandit that's called Corla. Corla Pandit. Now tell me where uh, I I saw on the uh, some of the info you sent that it, uh, it it had it had played and won some awards at a few film festivals already. So is it uh, is it going out in general release or is it kind of a traveling around the country uh, exhibition or? Well, right now it uh, you know it's actually it premiered last year at the Josie Film Festival in South Africa. And then played at a number of uh, film festivals, including the Newport Beach Film Festival, the Columbia Film Festival, and uh, it also won the Audience Award at the uh, Harlem International Film Festival in, in uh, New York City. It's also gone out and on uh, release for for kind of one night screenings mm-hmm. in you know in California. New York and uh, Portland and Washington, and it's it's you know and of course you played it at a, at, a, at a number of theaters here in in San Francisco. So we have gotten you know we have yet to get a distributor, but we are certainly getting the you know the movie out to certainly the people who want to see it. We were fans of of Corla even you know from his original days of on television to. His uh, his other group of fans who were in, you know, kind of involved in the tiki scene in the '90s in Los Angeles. Right, and that's that's kind of where that's kind of where I came in when I I started getting into tiki in the late '90s, and um, you know, Corla Pandit's records kind of popped up. That was one of the things that the people who were into the exotica music again were listening to. So it's. Um, he he basically invented it way before Les Baxter and certainly before Martin Denny, correct? Oh yes, I mean he was he was performing uh, his brand of music. You know, he had his own stamp of music that he played, which was on his television shows. He would either play you know popular show tunes of the day, mm-hmm. or he would play uh, oh Indian compositions. Now I did notice uh, there were some. So I really weren't familiar with what Indian music was at the time here in the state. Mm-hmm. And what Koala would do is he would have like an Indian dancer performing behind him as he was playing, uh, you know, Song of India. 
uh-huh. which of course is, was written by a Western musician. But it sounded, the way he performed, the way he, he had a very theatrical way of playing the, uh, uh, the Hammond B3 organ in a, in a percussive way that he used his hands. And uh, plus with him looking into the camera, uh, it just mystified people. They had not seen anybody play uh, the organ in that way. And they were in some of his own other compositions because he, he actually put out almost close to 100 different albums over his career that uh, they really weren't familiar with this type of music. So he has now been dubbed uh, or given the mantle of the godfather of exotica. So he was playing exotica music before we knew what to call it. I did find some stuff on YouTube. There are some clips of him performing it, and it's exactly like you say. It's it's. Uh, I guess nowadays you can look upon it as a little kitschy, but it's wonderful. He's just staring mesmerizingly at the camera and and playing these really exotic songs. It's 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 pretty interesting to think that that was a a TV show. Yes, as a matter of fact, it was it was the first uh, all music program you know ever shown on live television. It was a it was a, originally fifteen minutes a day, five days a week, and then that got expanded to a half an hour, and then an hour show on the weekend. So he was he predated MTV. Yeah, <laughs> and he also had what well, you were referring to. What you saw on YouTube were these clips. Uh, music videos, the first music videos, mm-hmm. which were done in the 50s, uh, put together by a fellow named Louis Snader. And he would have these Snader uh, telescriptions, which were uh, music, like a, a song, you know, usually a two and a half minute song that he would film in the studio using multiple cameras, two cameras, and then they would you know, have those things develop, make copies, and then offer them to other TV stations around the country as filler uh, for Uh them to make, you know, the the hour or the half hour because television was in its infancy and uh, hadn't uh, worked out the, uh, you know, the commercial roadmap that it it has become today. So as a result of of Corla uh, performing for Lewis Nader, he not only got known in the in California, he got known first, you know, around the United States. People would see him at four in the morning in Louisiana and two in the afternoon in New York City and say, God, who is this guy? <laughs> you know, what am I seeing on late night or early morning TV? And uh, anyway, so he, uh, he uh, uh, certainly entered the subconscious of a lot of people mm-hmm. who, when you mention Corley Panda, they'll go, I don't know the name. Show me a picture. And then when they see the picture of this uh, bejeweled uh, fellow with a bejeweled turban, they go, I remember seeing him when I was a kid. Yeah. (laughs) And that turban is iconic. Yes. Very iconic. And the thing that's interesting about that turban is that because, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, that, you know, the American... uh, 
cultural audience, I guess we can call it, uh, really, uh, uh, they weren't familiar, that familiar with Indian music or uh, the Indian cultural uh, persona per se. Mm-hmm. And so they, uh, you know, they saw this fellow in, in the turban with a jewel, and they thought of other Hollywood stereotypes they had seen of, of uh, Simba uh-huh. or their fellows in these, uh, you know, uh, English colonial films. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, people who were either elephant, you know, elephant uh, trainers or were fakirs or something mysterious. Uh-huh. And uh, if people would have been, you know, had been paying attention, and I certainly don't blame them for us, uh, is that uh, Corler would, when he would give interviews, would tell people that he was, his father was Brahmin. He was from, uh, born in New Delhi, his father was Brahmin, high caste, uh-huh. and his mother was a French opera singer. And in Indian tradition, uh, uh, Hindus don't wear turbans. <laughs> so immediately, that was a that was a pretty big crack in a story, but nobody called them on it. Mm-hmm. And Sikhs wore turbans, uh-huh. but also Sikhs never ornamented <laughs> their turbans. So that was <laughs> another that was another crack in his story. But you know, this wasn't uh, actually. Uh, uh, brought to common knowledge until R.J. did this story in 2001, in which he did some really decent research because he went back to uh, actually uh, uh, where Corla grew up in Columbia, Missouri, and was able to find his birth certificate and find out more about the role of his father, Mm -hmm. who was a preacher in the the Baptist Church in Columbia. You know, it's really interesting because I, I... I have to confess, I don't know an awful lot about Corla Pandit, um, but he he came to fame roughly in forty eight forty nine, right, with the TV show. That's correct. So, yeah. mm-hmm. so that would really predate and certainly exclude him as an African American from a lot of things that he was not excluded from by being the exotic Corla Pandit from India, correct? That's exactly that's exactly correct, Mark. And uh, the the fact that in uh, the fact that he was on a, he had his own he hosted his own television show in 1949 made him uh, in retrospect the first African American to host their own TV program. Except at that time, nobody knew it. Right. Uh, however, that the reason that uh, he crafted, that people have speculated that he crafted this uh, alter personality along with his wife, uh, Beryl, was the fact that when he was in Los Angeles, he first, uh, when, he, when he migrated from Columbia, Missouri to Hollywood, at that time, uh, the, the music that was... Uh, in vogue was uh, Mexican music. And uh, so he got gigs under the persona of Juan Ronaldo, (laughs) which is just, his name is John Roland Red, so he just uh, 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 put a Spanish accent on it. Uh, So he was performing while wearing a turban as Juan Ronaldo. (laughs) 
and then uh, his, along with his wife, uh, reinvented himself another time as Corla Pandit. And the speculation there was that as an African-American, he could only get into the African-American uh, union in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. which of course allowed you only to play on the, you know, in the clubs and the chitlin circuits. It wasn't, you know, it was a harder way to make a dollar. Whereas as an Indian, he was able to get into the white musicians union, mm. opened a lot of doors for him. And that, and that's what people speculate is the reason for this, uh, this uh, inventing this new persona was a way for him to realize uh, some economic re- rewards uh, to match the the talent he had as an entertainer. Certainly, the uh, if if I can get uh, get uh, what's a controversial here, the idea of thousands or hundred thousands of American housewives swooning over. Uh, you know, let's just say it like it was over, swooning over an African-American on television probably wouldn't have happened. Correct. That's yeah, that's absolutely correct. And the, and the fact that, you know, what he was doing with by by uh, disguising his true identity on television, they would have if that would have come to light in, in let's say, certainly in the 40s, early 50s, um, he probably would have been taken off the air immediately. Yeah. And uh, who knows, he could have gotten, you know, some people think that what he was doing or what the station was doing, because the assumption was that they were in on this uh, as well, mm-hmm. that uh, uh, what they were doing was illegal and that, you know, he could have gotten roughed up for, for you know, playing to, the, to that audience. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. So where did you find a lot of the footage? I'm sure you had had to really search some of it out, right? Well, I, 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 there's, there's a lot of people I can give credit to, including Jeff Chenault, uh, is that I was uh, uh, familiar a little bit with uh, uh, some of the people in the Tiki community because, you know, uh, in the, the 90s, I wrote a, uh, a book on Edgar Litek, who was the modern father of painting on velvet. Really? Okay. Yes, and, and Lee takes one of the gods of the Tiki community, right? Because of his uh, romanticized uh, 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 drawings uh, or lush drawings or paintings on velvet that brought uh, Polynesia to the United States, actually around this, some of the same time in the fifties and sixties. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, so I plugged into people who were familiar with. Uh, um, Corla, when he performed in Los Angeles, and they were able to, you know, find some slides or some performance video. But I have to certainly give the props, of course, to uh, three people. One of them is Vern Langdon, who was a uh, he was a real interesting guy in um, Los Angeles. Who was a uh, he was a uh, protege of of, of Corla's, uh, and actually he was uh, the fellow who wrote and performed this, you know, the organ solos in uh, Carnival of Souls, you know, the, the horror film. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was Vern Langdon, and he was also a clown, a uh, 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 professional wrestler, 
writer. And anyway, uh, he was a big fan of Corliss, and he saved a lot of... Uh, uh, he traced Corliss' history and uh, kept a lot of his ephemera, you know, as mm-hmm. to where he played and, and you know, uh, uh, flyers and things of this nature. So he had, a, he had his own uh, kind of like uh, library of, of, of uh, you know, uh, of what Corla had done. Mm-hmm. And uh, he passed that along to a fellow in the Netherlands named Freak. And, and Freak had put up a website, which was all things about Corla Pandit. So I had, certainly I had Vern to thank for, mm-hmm. for saving that material, Freak for continuing it on and having it on the website, and for RJ for doing that initial work. And also people in the uh, Tiki community who were very uh, generous with their, their time and uh, some of the material that they had uh, procured that belonged to Corla over the years. Again, going back to uh, Corla's films and, and his talent in general, he was a very handsome, good-looking man, but he was one heck of a keyboardist, and I didn't realize it till I started seeing a few of these videos on uh, on on YouTube. I mean, he he was quite an accomplished keyboardist. Yeah, he certainly knew his knew his way around the uh, you know around the uh, the keyboard. And as you uh, saw from those videos, he's not looking down at his hands, right? He's looking at the camera, and uh, he really really had his, his own theatrical style of playing. And, uh, it, it, you know, as, as we now call it, it, it was a form of exotica. Yes. That, that was that he was inventing uh, as he, as he uh, played, played some of these familiar standards like Nizaloo. He turned that into an exotica number. Um, anyway, uh, he he was the interesting thing about it is that he had you know he had a he had a rather large fan base and like I said they were mostly women younger women uh-huh. uh, but uh, I talked to a number of other you know concert organists and they were a little um, uh, they didn't think quite as much of of, of Corla's playing style <laughs> as the women did <laughs> which I can understand because. Uh, you know, there are very few organists that have gotten the kind of uh, publicity mm-hmm. that uh, that Corley did. He was on fan magazines and uh, organ magazines, and he was making, you know, tours to different, you know, uh, organ stores and giving concerts in L.A. and at movie theaters. And you know, he was he was fairly well known within those circles. So there was a there was a little bit of uh, professional jealousy, but. Oddly enough, one of the people that we interviewed in the film was Carlos Santana, uh, who, as a uh, as a as a kid, grew up in Tijuana. And uh, on the television, they would get a signal from San Diego, the San Diego station, and he saw Corla Pandit uh, play as a kid when he was in Tijuana. No. <laughs> so you... we were able to interview him about uh, uh, Corla and. He gave Corla his props, you know, as a musician, and also as a, you know, as somebody who was also spiritually involved with the music as well. Right? Yeah. That I never would have linked Carlos Santana and Corla Pandit. That's fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there were there were a number of people who actually, you know, were were fans from a distance of Corla. You know, it's 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 like you know when you discover Exotica. 
you know, there's usually there's one more person and another person, and you know somebody gets the Ema Sumek, and then somebody takes a left turn to Lex Baxter, and you know, and so you're you're constantly, you know, uh, uh, the number of people you can listen to expands, and and I think that's that's what uh, that's what happened with Corla is that people would would discover uh, him at different times in their life. Mm-hmm. Definitely, but he like said, a, 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 a very good, uh, you know, strong. And they, I, I believe that you know they certainly play his uh, music on some of the uh, you know the um, uh, the internet stations. They'll, yes, they'll occasionally play a Corla Panda tune, and and I uh, have a Facebook uh, page called uh, it's just uh, uh, Corla the movie, uh-huh. and that's also the uh, the website. Um, and I get messages every day from people all over the world about Corla Panda. It completely blows my mind. I have no idea where they heard of them or even how they heard of this film. Uh-huh. It hasn't been out that long. Yeah. But they said, when is it coming to such and such? You know, is it going to play? You know, it's already played in, in Europe, played in the Netherlands. I got an I got a, a email from somebody who, who wants to play it in Melbourne. Somebody wants to play it in New Zealand. Uh, somebody wants to play it in France. So, uh, you know, he, he's... he's he, He's got a wider uh, fan base than I ever imagined. That that brings me to my next question. Um, where uh, do you do you have a schedule of where it's going to be playing in the uh, in the near future in 2016? Yeah, well, we we uh, we have you know, a website uh, com, and on there we have the trailer, so you get an idea of mm-hmm. you know what Corla looks like. And, and then we also have a, a drop down for uh, where the film will be playing next. Okay, fantastic. In this case, it played played uh, this past week in um, at the Real Music Festival in Portland, and it will be playing, I think, uh, here in San Francisco in February at the Noise Pop Festival, mm-hmm. and then it will be playing in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and then it'll be playing in Phoenix, and it'll be coming down, it'll be coming back to Los Angeles. It's already played in Los Angeles at the uh, City Family, uh-huh. and it also played at the Old Town Music Hall in El Segundo. Oh, I know was, that, I know that place. Yeah, and, and Bill Fields is a fellow who still runs that, and he booked uh, Corla in the, uh, in the 60s. Really? Well, it was coming back, uh, making, you know, or in between, you know, the revivals, the Coral Pandit revivals, he played, uh, he played regularly at, uh, at the Old Town Music Hall, and I've got a picture of him playing there, and uh, so we, we played, uh, we played it there, I think about two or three months ago, and uh, uh, everybody had such a fun time that uh, Bill wanted to show it again in June, so It'll be back there in June. Oh, great. I'm definitely going to be in the audience. That'll be fantastic. Oh, good, good. He, he had a son, too, if I'm not mistaken, Shari? What, yes, he actually had, he had two, two children by uh, his wife, Beryl. And uh, Shari passed away, I think, in uh, probably about 2004. Mm. Uh, and uh, Cora... Shari uh, didn't find out that his father was actually African-American until that article came out. Oh, my. So he held that, the, 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 
Corla and uh, Beryl decided not to tell either of the two boys mm-hmm. uh, their true racial identity. My goodness. And actually, uh, oddly enough, uh, we had a screening up in, in, in near Petaluma about three months ago, and uh, uh, Shari's, uh, his son came. Corla's grandchild came to the screening and was able to tell us a little bit of the times that he spent with Corla. And he didn't, his father never told him. Wow. <laughs> so he found out about it from when he when he uh, saw somebody on the, on the internet selling that Corla Pandit record and also said Corla Pandit, a.k.a. John Roland Red. And so he contacted the guy and said, no, that's my grandfather, that's Corla Pandit. And the guy said, no, that's John Roland Red. So that's how <laughs> he found out. You know, not too many years ago, that his that his grandfather was uh, not uh, the person he said he was. Wow! It's and he had a, a second son. Is his second son still alive? You know, yeah, I, yeah, he's alive, but he, uh, you know, uh, nobody's been able to really get in contact with uh-huh. him at this time. Wow! So, so nothing, nothing more about the you know the livelihood of of the uh, the other son. Uh-huh. We I, I have been in contact with uh his relatives you know from his birth relatives you know from Colombia who have you know who, who moved to all moved to Los Angeles and I was able to interview one of his uh uh nephews uh-huh and since the screening since the initial screenings uh in uh March and April of last year um we've had uh, uh other members of that family, from that side of uh, uh, John Roland Red's family, have actually come to screenings and talk proudly about uh, their relative, John Roland Red, and they're very, very happy that he is getting the uh, recognition that he is... Uh, that he deserves. Great. That is wonderful. Well, John, thank you very much for joining me here for this. I learned an awful lot. I really did. <laughs> well, like I said, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's an honor and a privilege to be able to tell uh, Corliss' story. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's not just the, the story of a musician or somebody who was down on their luck. It's, 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 a, it's a multi-layered story that... Uh, um, that gets you thinking. Yeah, very much so. I I cannot wait to see it. You know, because of the uh, Corliss story about uh, being an African American from uh, from Columbia who comes to Hollywood, and because of the uh, the racial situation, he had he felt he had to reinvent himself. Is that mm-hmm. there's, there's there are other messages in this film about. Uh, about you know the uh, uh, you know the racial makeup in the uh, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Sure. And Corla basically is is also the story of uh, of the secret that he kept for all those years, for 50 years as a professional performer, and the life he constructed to live without that secret being exposed. So I, I think there's more more to the film than just a uh, uh, a trip back in memory lane to the, uh, you know, the early birth of Exotica music. Mm-hmm. And he lived that persona right up to the end, correct? Yes, he, uh, he, yes, he did. And to his last breath, he did. As a matter of fact, 
somebody t- uh, told me who uh, was one of their relatives saw him giving concerts when he was in the uh, you know the uh, uh, the rest home in Petaluma, still wearing his <laughs> turban and still charming people when he was you know in his seventies, uh, late seventies. That's fantastic. Oh, he, you know, he, 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 this, uh, you know, John Roland Red actually, when he, when he decided to became, become Corla Pandit, he eventually became that, that character. And, uh, so he stayed in character most of his life. is just an amazing story and it, it, it's it, it it is it's amazing on so many different levels like you say john turner one of the creators of corla the movie and you can check out more about it it's uh if i get this right corla the yeah that's, that's the website and then facebook so yes everyone be sure and check out that facebook page and i'll have links to it on my website as well so john thank you for joining me here at the quiet village well thank you very much for uh, uh for for inviting me in it's been a real privilege Big mahalos to John Turner for that interview. I am so excited about that. I learned a great deal, and I'm really looking forward to seeing this movie. Go to digitiki.com, and I will have links to Corla, the movie website, as well as their Facebook page. And I'll try and have an updated um, calendar of showings of the film as well. Well... My Mai Tai there is empty. It's all ice. And uh, that means we've come to the end of another visit here at the Quiet Village. I want to thank all of you for listening. I want to thank all of you for tuning in to Quiet Village Radio. I want to remind you that you can go to the Quiet Village anytime by going to digitiki.com where you can listen to Quiet Village Radio streaming Exotica 20. Four seven, and we are still on the internet, even with the new these new uh, these new uh, rates for internet streaming. Also, you can get a complete rundown of the tunes that were played on this and past episodes, as well as you can listen to episodes directly from the podcast page, which is which is quite handy. So, I want to thank. John Turner one more time and I do hope to add a lot more Corla Pandit to the list now that I've I've discovered him a little bit more. I am going to leave you with a really appropriate tune. This is the actual closing bit from Corla Pandit's television show. So until next time everyone, aloha.
Pandit now closes his treasure chest of musical gems and looks forward to opening it again for you on his next program. If you have a favorite song close to your heart, Call a Pandit will try to include it on one of his future programs if you will please write to him in care of this station.